the first time my biological mother met me, she looked at me and she said, it isn't Narita I didn't want, it was a baby. That's a huge difference. Those people who may feel rejected because their mother gave them away, that's not true. Welcome everyone to Bringing Kids Home, a TBHC foster care and adoption production. I'm Jennifer Thomas, TBHC's marketing director. We are excited you're joining us today to hear stories of foster care and adoption and how any one of us, including you, can make a difference in a child's life. Stick around and hear how stories of faith and family help bring kids home. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Curry, president of TBHC Foster Care and Adoption. I'm so glad you're with us. My guest today is a longtime friend, Narita Drake. She has lived in Texas 34 years and is widely known among her friends as being a great cook. I personally can attest to this and have enjoyed some of her dishes over the years. I especially got a sample one Thanksgiving many years ago when my wife and I spent Thanksgiving Day with Narita and her late husband Earl. Narita has served and continues to serve in ministry support roles, currently serving as a kid ministry assistant. When invited, Narita has shared her story publicly because she wants adoption to be more considered, accepted, and sought after. So more people will know every child deserves a mother and father. Narita, thank you for sharing your time with us today and telling your Bringing Kids Home story. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I admit to looking forward to this for all the reasons that you mentioned. Not that I am seeking any fame or fortune. Um, it's just that it's very frustrating when I hear someone say that they're going to keep their baby. They're 15 years old. They're going to live with mom. And then they end up living with maybe grandma or somebody else. Um, it is frustrating for me to hear that they're on the streets. But that's not, um, that's not something that really impacts me because I don't seem to hear that anymore. And I'm not saying they're not on the streets. I personally do believe that every child deserves a mother and a father. And every child, there isn't a child who asked to be born. My personal story is that the woman who became pregnant was not married. The man who was her boyfriend confessed to her that he was married. And so when she told her parents, they had differing views. One said, we'll keep the baby. And the other one said, no, we'll send her to a home. Now, as you can tell, this was not 20 years ago. This was closer to 65-ish years ago. Things were different, people's attitudes were different. I'm not saying it was better or worse, I'm just saying it was different. So my grandfather won out and they took me to what they called a home for unwed mothers, where my mother stayed and emotionally disengaged from herself for the period of time that she was disengaged from her baby for the period of time that she was there. When I turned, she had to lie every day because it was a facility that said, you have to give up your baby or you can't stay here. So once I was born, she said, I'm not giving up my baby. Then they treated her poorly. 
I, the physician for the couple who adopted me was the same physician for the woman who was pregnant. And I'm using these terms not because I feel disengaged from them, any of them, but because it makes it easier to explain. Easier for the um, person who doesn't know my story to understand. So when I was eight days old, that physician showed up he discharged my mother, the woman who gave birth to me, and they walked out the door and he took the baby and walked in the opposite direction down the steps to a car that was waiting, a window rolled down and he handed the baby in that window and he turned around and walked away. My biological mother went to her parents' car and went back home like nothing had happened. I, of course, knew nothing. Um, I was eight days old. My new parents, or the people that I refer to as my parents, took me home, welcomed me as their own. As far as I can tell, everyone knew that I was adopted. It wasn't something that they were hiding. In fact, I have an invitation to a shower that says, you're invited to a shower for the adopted daughter of, and it gives my parents' names. I never remember being told I was adopted. It is my opinion that when they brought me home at eight days old, they said something like, oh, you're our wonderful adopted daughter, or you're, we're so glad we adopted you. It was a word that I heard like breathing air. And while I was breathing, I didn't know it was air. I didn't know what that was, just like I didn't know what adoption was. But eventually I figured it out. I never remember a conversation. And the reason I point that out is because I think it's, I have, uh, I know of people who were adopted and they remember mom and dad said, we have something to talk to you about. Well, for me anyway, whenever they said that, it was about my grades <laughs> and it wasn't a good thing. <laughs> so I feel like my parents did a really good job of that. I was raised as an only child. I lived an idyllic life. Um, the neighborhood we were in, my best friend was the youngest of four kids. Mary Beth, my girlfriend was obviously an afterthought. At least that's the way it looked from my perspective. She had three much older children mm -hmm. and then there was my friend. So my friend thought I was spoiled and rich and I had everything I wanted. Well, that isn't the way it felt to me, but now that we've become adults, we're still in touch mm -hmm. with each other, not so much. Um, she understands more now. <clears throat> she knew I was adopted, and it, like I say, it was never anything that we hid. Was there anything from that era of your life that you remembered any kind of emotional feelings regarding adoption? I don't remember having an emotional reaction to anything to do with adoption. What I do remember is wondering about my biological um, mother's physical characteristics. When we got to the point in school where we were studying, if your father's eyes are purple and your mother's eyes are orange, then you're gonna have lavender eyes or whatever. Then I got to wondering, hmm, and in my head, and so what is that? Grade, mm -hmm. late grade school, maybe 
for me, probably late grade school, in my head, I had this vision of going to some place at night. I would stand in a dark alley and she would walk down the street and stop under a street light. So, you know, I could see everything about her, but I had nothing invested for my end. And that was always my interest. Sorry to say, Jason, I had zero interest in my father. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I have kids too, and I see their interest in their mother is a lot heightened, <laughs> a lot more heightened than in me. You know, I'm curious, because I remember seeing that from your talk. Why do you think you wanted that distance like you described? Well, I'm not quite sure, except at the, at that time, well, let me back up and say, because you already know this, but I have since met my both of my biological parents mm -hmm. well at the time i was envisioning the street life scenario both of my parents were alive and they were not when i met my biological parents but both of my adoptive parents were alive and there may have been a concern on my part about not hurting their feelings or okay something like that i'm yeah but you know then as i look back with years of knowledge um, one of the things a family relative said to me when she found out that I'd met my biological mother, she said, well, your mother would be rolling over in her grave. Well, I don't believe that for many reasons, because I feel like I knew my mother better than she did, but also because in my mother's uh, dresser, there was the article about when my biological mother got married there was a picture of her in her wedding dress. And ever since I can remember, we had that article and I could look at it anytime I wanted. So yeah. I don't feel like they were afraid. I'm certainly they were protective. I'm certain they didn't want her to come into my life when I was five or seven or 10 years old because it would you know, mess with my mind. Yeah. But I don't think they were ever worried about that. I think they were confident in their love for me and my love for them. You have an incredible testimony. What would you say to an adoptive parent right now listening that I'm afraid that if my kid learns about their biological family that they might leave, they might not love me anymore. What would you say to them? Oh, I have so many thoughts. Uh, my first one is even at my age, after knowing my both sets of my biological parents, I pray every night, thank you, God, for having me be adopted. Now, both families are not terrible, horrible. Nobody's, you know, neither of my parents were drug addicts or alcoholics or abusive. They didn't have prison sentences. They didn't have a prison record. But they had issues. And I'm sure that my adoptive family had issues also. However, it was clear to me from six months after I met my biological mother that God's hand was all over this because I was much better off being adopted. And I was truly loved. You know, my parents waited 11 years to have a child. That's a long time. And in my opinion, parents, 
are not people who perform a physical act necessarily. They are people who go to the PTA meeting and listen to how you misbehaved. They're the people who hold your head when you're throwing up. They're the people who rush you to the emergency room when blood's gushing from your leg. They're the people who put in the time. They changed your diapers. They took you to the doctor. They took you to the dentist. They listened to you when you came home angry and they looked at your report card when it was wonderful and when it was lousy and they loved you the same either way. That's what a parent is. That's really great. Well, kind of getting back on your story a little bit more, we haven't really gotten to, I guess I would describe it as a heartbreak. You have pretty much the perfect life, according to your best friend growing up. Now you're getting close to adulthood. Right. Right. I would say, especially looking back, that I had a pretty idyllic life for the first 16 years. Mm -hmm. Through no fault of anybody's in particular, my father died suddenly when I was 16 years old. It is my opinion that my mother basically died the same day. It just took her 18 months to lay down. So 18 months after my father died, my mother died. It was my senior year in high school. I graduated in June. She died in July. Um, by that time, we had moved away from my home state, and I was now living in a state where I had no family, neighbors. I was pretty green. I could cook a little bit, and I could do my laundry. My mother made sure I could do my laundry. And obviously, by 18, I could t- you know, take care of my body. But I didn't make a house payment because, you know, they don't send you a bill. So I get a phone call and this person wants to speak to Mrs. So-and-so. And I go, figuring it was a salesperson. She's not here. She's dead. And it would be fair to say I had a little chip on my shoulder at that time. And so she said, are you her daughter? And I said, yes. And she said, well, let me speak to your father. And I said, he's with her. What do you want? And she says, were you planning on making a house payment? And I thought, oh, and I said, well, were you planning on sending me a bill? And she said, we don't send bills, (laughs) ma'am. Oh, and little stuff like that. You know, I mean, I did not lose the house. I was trying to figure out how come I had so much money. Now I know. (laughs) If you don't make your house payment, you have a whole bunch of money. Sure. And uh, so I was able to catch up. I was employed full time at a good job that paid well for the time. And then I was there, quote, alone. My family in the other state just thought that was terrible. They thought I should rush back but they were a little too suffocating. And so I stayed away from my home state until I turned 24 years old. When I returned from my mother's funeral, there was a letter in my mailbox um, that started out, my dearest darling granddaughter, it's about time you found out about your real family. Well, my real family was dead. I'm sorry, they were. The letter said, in part, I I don't have it in front of me, but it said, your mother has five sons and your mother lives two blocks from me. And the woman writing was my grandmother, biological grandmother. 
And she said, your mother is a good cook and your mother, your mother, your mother. And as I said, my mother was dead. And so I didn't reply. Well, a week later, I got another letter. And because I was 18, that was considered underage in the state that I lived in. So I had an attorney and I had a guardian of person and I had a guardian of property. And it was like getting a vote of Congress to paint the house, for instance. So I um, sent these letters to my attorney and I said, will you reply to her kindly but firmly to leave me alone? And he did. So when I turned 24 years old, my best friend who thought I had an idyllic life got married. She wanted me in the wedding, so it was 300 miles away. And she was one of those people who followed every bridal guide there was. So I had to give a shower, even though I was 300 miles away. I had to do dress fittings and luncheons and all of that. And so I traveled back and forth frequently. Well, the, one of the first times I did that, I took this packet of letters from my biological grandmother, told her, read these and tell me what you think. Well, she walked out of her bedroom with tears streaming down her face. And she says, this woman has one foot in the grave and the other on shaky ground. And you're going to be filled with guilt for the rest of your life if you don't let her meet her firstborn grandchild. And I looked at her and I said, okay, well, whose side are you on? But I called the grandmother, identified myself and said, I thought if you weren't busy, I'd stop by today. Like she's going to say, oh, today's not a good day. Come back in another 24 years. So I showed up and we talked and she did not hug me. That's important because she was a stranger to me. And she had family albums out. I mean, this is your great uncle Harry on your cousin's brother's nephew's dog side, et cetera, et cetera. And she got to a picture of an eight-year-old girl standing on her hands wearing a leotard. And she said, there's your mother. You look just like her. I didn't really see the resemblance at the time. It may have been the stick straight hair, but at any rate, and again, I was offended by the phrase, your mother. So I was basically trying to be nice to an old lady. And I did my thing and I left. Here comes the emotional part that I cannot explain. I was leaving town. I stopped at her house on the way out of town. I cried for two hours. I was driving and crying for two hours. And I still can't tell you why. I can guess. But I can't really tell you. So weeks go by back to another trip for the wedding and I called her and asked her if she'd like to see me and she said that would be great. Your mother is off today. Hi, I'm Jamie Hogan, Executive Program Administrator at TBHC Foster Care and Adoption Services. Did you know there's over 7,000 children waiting for adoption today? Did you also know that Texas has 30,000 children entering foster care every year? At TBHC, our hope is to provide the highest quality of care for kids who are coming from really hard places. We work to make sure that children in our care have a safe and loving home and that their dreams have no limits. What if you could be a part of making those dreams possible? I'd like to invite you to join the thousands of people who help TBHC meet the needs of children 
by going online to tbhc.org and clicking the donate button. Our ministry depends on supporters like you to help bring kids home. On our website, you can also find out more information about our agency, inspiring stories, and ways to pray for TBHC kids. To find out how you can make an impact on children in foster care, check us out at tbhc.org. And she said, that would be great. Your mother is off today. Well, I didn't say I want to meet my mother. <laughs> and she said, do you want to meet your mother? She did that the first meeting. Do you want to ask me three or four times? And I said, if she wants to meet me, that's fine. If she doesn't, that's fine too. And that visit, we decided that we would meet. Well, I was terrified. I mean, I tried on all the clothes that I brought. I tried on my girlfriend's clothes. I tried on some of her husband's clothes. I didn't like me in anything, but I went. We met at the grandmother's house, and when I laid eyes on her for the first time, I thought I was looking in a mirror. It, it was so unnerving, for one thing. I wasn't expecting that. And the first thing she said to me was, how old were you when your mother died? So I had assumed that like mother, like daughter, therefore she would think she was my mother. And she knew she wasn't. And because of that, we had a great relationship until she passed away. We would joke about it. She would tell other people that my, she had five sons. And people would hear about that and look at me and go, wow, you must have been spoiled. And my mother said, well, she didn't give me a minute's trouble the whole time she was growing up. So we were able to have a, a very good relationship. What role do you think your faith played in all of this, bringing you through everything during that time? Um, I was raised Presbyterian. We attended a Presbyterian church, and that pastor at that church was, to pardon the pun, a godsend. He was the person who would just let me talk, say anything, I had appointments with him for probably a year, maybe more after my mother died. And there was a lot of guilt with my mother because I was so afraid that she would die, but it was a lot for a 17 and 18 year old woman, girl to handle because she was on pain medication. She was an emotional wreck from the day my father died. And I give myself a break now, but I sure didn't at the time. I thought I should have been enough to keep her alive. I thought I should have managed her pain and her meds and all of that. And I don't remember that he particularly said, well, no, Narita, that's not your fault. He just let me talk. And eventually I figured out, though not with him, it was eons later. No, it wasn't my fault. I'm not that powerful. I came to Christ when I was 22 in the home that um, my parents raised me in out of state after um, they both died. Um, it was a life-changing, breathtaking experience as are most of those sorts of things. And I can see that the Lord was with me the whole time. And I didn't disbelieve, you know, people, I hear a lot 
of course there's a God. How can you not believe there's a God? Well, I frankly don't understand how someone cannot believe there's a God. I'll go back to my air. This is the air. I've always known it was there. I've always used it. I didn't always understand how it worked. I've always known there was a God. There has to be. And that was never an issue with me. Is he there? My relationship with him was, but not whether or not he existed. So at 22, you accepted Christ. Right. After one of the most difficult things anyone can ever go through, you then turn to the Lord. You know, some people would have expected you to not turn your back on God because you hadn't accepted him, but turn your back on the church, for example. Why do you think you drew closer to God instead of away? I blame the church (laughs) (laughs) because the church really went, you know, this pastor, his staff, there were secretaries. I'm sure everybody felt sorry for me, be that correct or not correct. It was a tragedy. If you think about any 16-year-old whose father died violently, and then 18 months later, their mother died. It's a tragic situation. And so I can see why people would treat me as they did, but they were always there. So I think unconsciously, I was, well, of course, God is the next step. I I never made that decision consciously per se, but they were the ones who treated me the best. And I would say to any pastor listening to me, please just let your parishioners speak to you, to, you know, he was just, I mean, I can still see his face. I remember his name. I can see his book lined office where we met. I can see his couch. Such an important thing for us to be reminded of is just what listening to people can do and caring about them. So we've, we've looked at a little bit of that. You not were adopted, you are adopted. And what's kind of your, your takeaway from this childhood, if you will, up to 24, 25, where looking from the outside in, you basically have gained a second family is how I always heard us discuss it. Kind of describe that for us, kind of bring us up to date on what does a second family look like to you today? Well, both of my biological parents have now passed away, but I had years with them. Mm -hmm. And when I do the Reader's Digest version of my life, uh, one of the things I always say is that I have two brothers named Mike. (laughs) And that can be confusing. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure my husband was ever able to separate each person each of my siblings to which parents they belong to. But that was okay. I have 11 siblings. I have had 11 siblings. Two of them have passed away. And some of them speak to me and some of them do not. And that's fine. One in particular is angry at me because I was conceived when our father was married to her mother. I'm real sorry about that, but you know, I didn't get a vote. I can't let that bother me. I have an extremely good relationship with some, an okay relationship with most, and like I said, a couple of them don't speak to me, but that's on them. 
that doesn't, it, it's sad for me, but I, I don't feel any guilt or anything about that. I believe I benefited from meeting these people. It's interesting to see some familial traits, but then I look at the influence my biological, my adoptive parents had on me, and that's huge. Um, and I'm not talking about teaching me to be a good person. I mean, yeah, they did that. But I don't know, the way you fold your towels, little stuff like that. So I don't believe, I think genetics plays a part, obviously. Yeah. But I think that your surroundings play the larger part. The first time my biological mother met me, she looked at me and she said, it isn't Narita I didn't want. It was a baby. That's a huge difference. And those people who may feel rejected because their mother gave them away, that's not true. Your mother didn't, your mother gave away a baby that she didn't know. That she didn't know the child's personality. She didn't know what color the child's hair was going to be. She gave it away to somebody who was better equipped to take care of it than the mother was. And I just think that's huge. And when my mother said that to me, I just thought, wow. Um, and the other thing I'd like to say is something that the Lord blessed me to be able to spit out of my mouth at the right time. My biological grandmother said to me, I didn't want you adopted out. I wanted to raise you. And I looked at her and I smiled and I said, sometimes it takes more love to give something up than it does to keep it. And I believe that to this day. You know, I've heard you say both of those things and the, the context of that always has blown me away that you were the one to say it. One of the things that just struck me, we use terminology like right. what you said earlier, choosing not to parent. Because choosing not to parent doesn't mean you're throwing something away. It's saying, I can't parent. I can't do this. And there's someone who can. You know, that's so important. The other thing is, is loving someone enough to know that there's something better for them if I choose not to. Uh, It's very powerful. You encompass so much in your story. What it is to be adopted, that family dynamic of you learned what true family was through that. And even after you learned a bigger understanding of family, we talked often about redefining our own perceptions of family a lot. What's one of the biggest things you learned about family when you kind of look in hindsight through the years? Well, my opinion isn't that family necessarily shares blood. I think your family are the people who put in time, effort, and energy. Certainly your parents do that. Even a younger sibling puts in time. And as they get older, effort. The simple gesture of going to your sister's house for Christmas. While we can't choose our biological family, we can choose those that we spend time with. One thing I will say is that first 30 years of my life made me strong and independent. And I moved halfway across the country with all my belongings in a trailer behind me 
and no job because I felt that's where I needed to be. And I have survived and thrived since I got here, which was in 1986. So it's been a few years. Just a few. Yes. I think that God knew everything that was going to happen before and after I was saved. Mm-hmm. I think that um, God knew that I would have multiple families. I mean, I have two brothers. They might. <laughs> so, and here's another good thing. If you're getting in an argument with one family, you've got another one to go to. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I guess just to kind of, wrap it up. You felt so much courage to do this. At least that's what I see in you. Courage to step out and meet people that were strangers. Courage to move to a new country, Texas. And while you were here, we became friends over a decade ago now. During all these years, I guess there's never been looking back and questioning because there was so much along the way that pretty much prepared you to have courage in this life. I guess I just wanted to speak that into you and just thank you for not ever backing down from sharing your story. Uh, I know that the opportunities have come and you've said, yes, I remember the first time you were going to do it. It wasn't grudging, but it was nervous. I guess I just want everyone to know your story because of how much it's touched my life. When I talk about adoption with you, your encouragement to me is, Uh, We stepped through that process, my wife and I, and our boys uh, just touched me a lot. Is there anything you'd like to share? Um, I think that everything that happened made me who I am, and I was terrified a lot. But, you know, there used to be a commercial on television that said, never let them see you sweat. So if you can get through it, you know, it, it does make you stronger. I do believe it made me very, very much so did it make me stronger. The one thing that I would encourage adoptive parents to do is to tell their children that they're adopted immediately, you know, when they're eight days old, because someone knows. In my biological mother's case, her neighbor told one of my brothers when he was 12. And my mother didn't know that until he was 19. That could have been pretty traumatic for him. And when I meet somebody who has adopted a child, I say, thank you for adopting. And then I say, you're gonna tell him or her, right? And if they say no, then I say, well, please rethink that. And I tell them about my brother. Narita, thank you so much. It means a lot having you on today. You blessed me a whole lot. My pleasure. If you would like to get in touch with today's guest or any of our previous guests, you can contact us through email, podcast at tbhc.org. That's podcast at tbhc.org. Leave us a comment, recommend a guest to our show, and give us a five-star review. And don't forget to subscribe. To everyone listening, thanks for helping bring kids home. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website, tbhc.org, and discover how you can participate in bringing kids home.